Hello again, everyone. Welcome to the Red and White Authority. I'm Art Regner. This is episode number 43, and our guest, and it does give me great pleasure to uh, have Kelly Rudy on, of course, of uh, these days, the... uh, Hockey Night in Canada, but he is also works for Sportsnet, uh, uh, well, with Hockey Night in Canada. Now, I'm so used to it being in the CBC, uh, and also a commentator for the Calgary Flames and an author. Kelly has written a, a book called Calling the Shots Up, Downs, and Rebounds, My Life in the Great Game of Hockey. So with all that said, we'll get into everything. Let's bring in uh, uh, Kelly Rudy. Kelly, thanks for doing this. Really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. I'm looking forward to it. Um, you know, I, I want to go back to when you were a player uh, because I always kind of gravitated to goalies anyway. It's kind of my favorite position, I think, in all of sports, last line of defense and all those cliches. But you stood out. And, and I can remember watching you for the first few times with the Islanders and then with the Kings, with the headband, the mask, the hair. I just thought, this guy is cool. Then when I see you as a broadcaster... You're so well-spoken, number one. You don't fly off the handle, and you seem to be the voice of reason on that panel and uh, on After Hours. So I'm kind of, I'm kind of curious. Uh, did you, did you really have two personalities? The wild man with, uh, with the headband, and then the, uh, uh, the broadcaster. You know what? That's interesting, Art, because I think to a certain degree there might be that dynamic in play here. Uh, when I think about it, uh, and it is in the book, I'm glad you brought that up, uh, I was kind of shocked and aghast. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm fighting something here, but uh, throughout to, you know, the last, say, 10 years, because I'd go places, part of my duties is Hockey Night in Canada, I'd get former players in particular that I played against in junior, and uh, two that really stand out to me, Barry Trotz, of course, coach of Washington, and Troy Loney, a guy that played in Pittsburgh and won cups with them, and they they showed me scars where I I was just shocked. I kicked them when we were playing in junior, and there'd be a scrum in front of my net and stuff, and the whistle would blow, and I had no idea that I'd lost my mind like that. So uh, I think to a certain degree, I was like over the top passionate about playing, and uh, it turned into uh, maybe being a little bit vicious at times. But I think. A lot of guys are like that, and the moment the game is over, then I go back to being really just a, a mild-mannered kind of guy to a certain degree also, and, and so I think that you see that on television. What you saw when I played was a different sort of personality. Like, I really uh, hated the opposition. Like, it wasn't fake for me. It was uh, something that going into every game, no matter who it was, it was easy for me to really, really hate them, and, and so... That was a good thing for me. I needed to play with that sort of edge or that anger. Um, it's not for everybody, and uh, that's kind of the, the personality I, I am or I was. Do you think it's it's kind of the nature of the position? I mean, in all of professional team sport, maybe soccer, I guess, or, or football for our European audience, but I, I'm kind of curious because you play, essentially, unless you're pulled, the entire game. I mean, the, the amount of pressure, what a goaltender views, what they, what they go through, I think is completely unique in all of sport. It is for sure. Uh, I would think maybe a quarterback might have that or yes. a starting pitcher. Um, but I think for goaltenders, that's why oftentimes uh, they're not weird. I, 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 I'm really serious about that. I think long ago they were somewhat odd simply because they were so scared because they didn't wear a mask and so on. That would be incredibly frightening to me. But I think more so it's just the pressure, and that's why oftentimes you see goalies that are just quiet on game days. And, and for me, I was fairly relaxed. Uh, although my wife would tell you also that I was a little bit uh, quieter. Um, but to me, it was about concentration. I had to really focus on what uh, I was doing that night. And it is a unique pressure. Um, there's no question about it. In the dressing room, uh, I would look around at the most of the guys really enjoying the moment and really enjoying the experience. And I wouldn't say that's always the case for a goaltender, simply because you have that unique uh, pressure. And so for me... Uh, I really enjoyed it. I learned to cope with it, although there was a time in the 92-93 season where it got the best of me and I really struggled and I had to get some help 
outside help. Luckily for me, Barry Melrose uh, was there and he uh, recruited Tony Robinson. So I was able to uh, get the help from Tony. That, of course, uh, art is in the book because it was a huge part of my life and, and uh, those two guys saved my career. Right. I, I mean, I really want to get into the book because uh, I think I, through our email correspondence, uh, uh, I, I know that trying to get it here, the you know the American Red Wing fans, shall I say, are saying we're having yeah. a, tr- a tough time finding it. And then, of course, the Canadian Red Wing fans, and there are many of them, obviously, in Windsor, say you have to go to chapters. You have to go to chapters. Unfortunately, chapters is in Canada. It is not in the United States. So, yeah, well, and uh, you can also go uh, on, uh, I, I would think just Google it and go to, I do know it's sold on Amazon. So if you go to Amazon, I've been told anyways that it's in the States, there are other places uh, like that. Um, so you can go, uh, Walmart, I believe, has it. I'm not sure exactly all the distribution in the States, but I know that it certainly is available. Okay, great. All right. I'm, I'm glad that we could clear that up uh, uh, because, you know, I have people tell me on Amazon it's like a third-party seller. And so, uh, uh, because anyway, I mean, it, it's a wonderful book, Calling the Shots, Ups, Downs, and Rebounds, My Life in the Great Game of Hockey. Uh, you know, you say a lot of different things about, about goaltenders, but uh, one thing that I really couple of things that I found, found compelling in, in the book, and I've only read sort of reviews and excerpts from it because I asked yeah. this for, for Christmas. I, uh, ho- ho- hopefully, hopefully someone's going to be able to find it. I'll, I'll probably end up getting like 15 copies of this book here, Kelly. But, uh, but anyway, you talk about goaltenders in your generation, or especially in the 80s, kind of being the weak links of the team. Is, is that because the game was so running gun, offensive-minded, or tough? I mean, because the game certainly has evolved. Why do you think that was? Well, a combination of things. So there's no question that it was running gun. Uh, the coaches uh, weren't quite as uh, um, into the defensive style of hockey that we see now. Uh, video, um, that was used uh, sparingly, I'd say. And whereas today it's the biggest coaching tool that uh, the coaches have and use. And so you look at just the structure of the game, it's entirely different. And then maybe the most important reason why is because the equipment that the goaltenders uh, wore when I played back in the 70s and 80s and to a certain degree in the early 90s just wasn't nearly as protective as it is now. I mean, rarely, and I mean rarely, does a shot ever hurt a goalie now. They're so protected um, and I think that's a good thing to a certain degree, uh, but we were, we were to a certain degree afraid of the puck. I remember um, wow. my draft year, it was 19, I started junior in 1978, so my draft year was, of course, the following year, uh, and I remember after a game, we were on the road, and my coach, Patty Janelle, introduced me uh, to Rudy Pillis. Now, if you know the, the game of hockey, Rudy was an extremely influential guy back then, and so I was thrilled to have a chance to meet uh, Rudy Pillis. And after the game, he said something to me like, Kelly, there's parts of your game I really like, but you look scared of the pocket times. And and I didn't even hesitate. And I just blurted it out. So I'm like, yeah, it hurts. Like, I mean, it, it really did. There were times where we were just really, really afraid uh, because uh, you knew what the, if the guy – that had a real big, powerful shot, the likelihood of you really feeling it or getting injured, that was a, a real concern. So I think uh, you look at the style that we played, we didn't go down nearly as often simply because we have to protect our upper body and our head area and so on. So uh, the guys today, and I'm not flagging them in any way, shape, or form, they're just they're able to play a different style simply because they feel safer. And so... To me, there are a number of different reasons, but I think I sort of explained why I think it's a different position now or played differently and why we weren't nearly as as good as the the goaltenders in today's game. Yeah, I could talk to you about goaltending for this whole podcast, but there is a couple things I wanted to ask you about because I've asked Peter Mrazek, Jimmy Howard, Chris Osgood, Mike Vernon, Curtis, you, you name virtually Dom, all the guys that have played golf for the Red Wings over the last 20 years or so about this yeah. equipment thing because it seems to me that that 
you just said they don't get hurt anymore, but they're always talking about the goaltender's equipment, and, and I'm thinking to myself, well, why should it be smaller? After all, these guys are using sticks that you know, have so much torque on them or whatever. I mean, these shots are coming at you guys at, you know, 100, 110 miles an hour uh, at will. Um, do you think that goaltending equipment should be, because you know, they're constantly modifying it. I can remember the days, and I know you do too, Kelly, and this is several years ago, where randomly the NHL would show up to measure goaltenders' pads. Uh it just seems that, uh, I guess what I'm trying to say is, and I have a tendency to ramble here, so forgive me, is that uh, are, you, uh, are you happy with the way the equipment is now? And do you think that eventually they're going to have to look at maybe the equipment that the shooters are using as far as just velocity coming off the stick? I mean, I can talk to, you know, Red Wing players have always told me that, you know, when they get those new sticks, they love to break them in because they, they really think that they have, uh, for lack of a better term, a weapon in their hands. Yeah, for, there's no question that the, the equipment they use, the sticks they use, so on, they shoot harder than ever. Uh, nobody will ever question that. And to that point, I think when I joined the league in 83, there's usually about four or five guys in every team that could shoot hard. Uh, and when I left the game in 1998, I thought there was only maybe three or four guys that couldn't shoot the puck hard. Now I'm told basically everybody has a great shot. So that is in part because of training and also the sticks uh, and the materials that the sticks are made of. But to that point, I do think, first of all, goaltender safety is extremely important, but I do think their equipment is too big. I, I think that they have to get that under control because when you look at the size of these guys on the ice and you look at the size of them off the ice, the difference is dramatic. They're, they're huge in the net, and I don't think they need to be. I think that, again, when you look at protection, that's a separate thing. But in some cases, or in a lot of cases, it's just bulk. And it's just there to uh, block a shot as opposed to uh, protect a guy from being injured. Well, and I, I guess to that point, too, there are times where, you know, I'll, I'll take Jimmy Howard's glove and put it on my hand, and it, it, you know, I can. My whole head can be encased in it. I mean, it is that large. I mean, it's and I got a big head, so I mean, it's. Uh, uh, I, I understand what you're saying. How about then the issue? And we hear this all the time of goaltender interference when it isn't a goal, running into the goalies. Uh, do you think that that is an issue, or does the league have that under control? I think for the most part, the league has that under control. It's uh, that's always a very difficult one and oftentimes during a broadcast art I'm wrong in my assessment of whether it's goalie interference or not. I, I'm just it's a it's something that's open to opinion and so when I look at it and the people uh, in the league offices when they're watching it in the war room, oftentimes we see it a little bit a little bit differently. And I'm okay with that because that sort of is the 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 nature of the, the game, we all see it just a little bit differently. So, uh, to me, I think they do a great job of protecting the goaltenders. I Personally, I do like a little bit of incidental contact because I think that that's part of the com competitive nature of the game. I think if a guy accidentally sort of contacts the goaltender and vice versa, if the goaltender sort of shoves him or gives him a little slash at times, I'm cool with that. I think that's... Uh, something that's been around the game for a long, long time. I don't want that to completely disappear. But also, again, when we talk about goaltender safety, we have to make sure two things, that they're not going to get injured with uh, some sort of incidental contact, whether it's up uh, by the head and or in the uh, ability to make a save. They have to have the opportunity to make a save and not have incidental contact interrupt that uh, ability. When you uh, uh, when you look at at, at today's goaltenders, uh, do you think that Kelly Rudy in his prime would be a goaltender in the NHL, uh, or has the and, and really the is as I said earlier, it, it has evolved because I mean I loved you as a player. I mean I've already told you that, and I'm not saying it because you agreed to do this podcast. I mean there was just something about you. As a matter of fact, I will tell you, I don't think the way you played, that there were many guys that wanted to go near your crease or run into you, or maybe I'm wrong, because you would let them know that, hey, I'm here, and I, my stick is a little bit bigger than yours. Art, I appreciate that, and I take that as a true compliment, because 
I will say this, the game was different, and it's not something that I learned from Billy Smith, my partner, for many <laughs> years. That was just something that I had with me all through my youth and when I played uh, junior and when I played in the minors. I was very combative, so there's no question about that. I think to a certain degree, of course, you, you could easily make the case that my style of play, in particular when I joined the league, was, was so archaic it could never work in today's game. But the one thing is, and I've talked to other players about, you know, skaters and so on, and uh, you would look at my area, you'd go, well, you know, they don't skate quite as well as they do today and so on. But the one aspect that I think guys before me, my my uh, era and the current guys, if you're good, you think the game well. And that, that will never change. So... My point being, if you're a good goalie back in the 80s, you'd be a good goalie in today's game if, of course, you were trained properly and wore the same equipment and had the same sort of goaltending coaches simply because you can read a play. And to be a good goaltender, it doesn't matter if it's in the 1930s or in today's game, you have to have the ability to read a play and not only one play, but two or three options that the player that's carrying the puck might have. So it's, it's not only the obvious choice that you're trying to... Uh, figure out the, the other options that the, this puck carrier has. That, that's the key, really, when I watch all goaltenders. I, I like to watch about their body language and how they read a play. To me, that's everything about the position. I, I, I know I'm going to jump around a little bit here, and you know, you talked about Billy Smith, and uh, yeah, I love those those Islanders teams back then. I mean, the Red Wings, even though they've always been my favorite team, I guess, but you know, they had some some mighty struggles uh, along the way until uh, until they uh, evolved into what they were in the '90s and in the early 2000s, but. Uh, a debate here, and I've got a Chris Osgood is a very, very good friend of mine. Um, is that I'm kind of curious, where do you stand on whether Ozzy should be in the Hall of Fame or not? I know I'm throwing a, kind of a little bit of a ringer here at you, but uh, yeah, I, I think people would obviously love to hear your opinion on this. Okay, you're not throwing me a ringer here. I would say unequivocally that Osgood deserves to be in the Hockey Hall of Fame. His numbers. Uh, are ridiculously good. I'm I'm a friend of his also, but uh, even if I wasn't a friend of his, I'm offended when people suggest that, oh, he was just a goaltender on a really, really good team, and that's why his numbers look like that. Like, to get 400 wins is so unique and so unusual that, to me, that guy, Chris Osgood, deserves a lot more respect. I'm a big fan of his. I'm a big fan of his work. Stanley Cup winner multiple times, and I just think that he he deserves the credit. Um, I'm looking at his numbers right now. 401 wins, only 216 losses, uh, 95 ties. Those numbers are in comparison. His winning comparison per percentage is in comparison to Ken Dryden and others that are in the Hockey Hall of Fame. So uh, I hope it happens. I hope that uh, people overlook the fact that he just played for a really good team as well because I don't care who you are. It just doesn't happen simply because you're on a good team. I mean, you still have to make the saves and you still have to uh, make the key save at the right time, and that's what Osgood did. Well, certainly. I mean, I and I guess not to belabor this point, but – it doesn't it go hand in hand? If if you're on a good team, you've got you're probably a pretty good goalie as well. I mean, they're not, you know because the team is so good. I mean, it's a team, and, and part of the team is being a, a, a goaltender, and and they're you know maybe the most important position on the entire team. I mean, if Chris Osgood wasn't getting the job done, uh, trust me, the Red Wings would have made sure that uh, that he wasn't in net. That's right, and so the other quality. When I talked about the goaltenders and what I look for, body language and reading a play, there's one other aspect that I really, really liked about Chris Osgood, and I said this many times on Hockey Night in Canada. He had almost like a defiant attitude, and I love that. It's kind of like the attitude that Corey Crawford has in Chicago also. There's a defiance there, and it's kind of like they kind of heard the rumors like, yeah, uh, Chicago's a really good team, but Corey Crawford, you know, maybe the beneficiary of that team. And, and I just love the way in which he carries himself. And it's like, yeah, no, that's not right. I'm a great goaltender. 
and I deserve the credit, and I'm going to go out there and prove it to you. And that's the same attitude that I really admired in Austin. Right. Well, I, I know. I, I always tell him because, you know, he's really was, you know, you know him. I mean, he tries to be low key about it. But, uh, you know, every every year when he doesn't get in, I send him a text immediately and say that he was screwed and, you know, that it'll eventually happen. Right. But if they win, right. if they win that uh, uh, that cup in 2009, when they lose game seven at Joe Lewis Arena, he, pro- he probably is the MVP of the playoffs. And I think that we wouldn't be having this discussion because he would be in now. I mean, I've told him that. I truly believe that. Do you think I'm just full of hot air? No, no, no. I think you're right. I think Chris also was the beneficiary of being around Mike Vernon for a while also. Right. And, uh, uh, our, he, he's a terrific competitor also. And so in his early days, the, the fact that uh, Osgood was around Mike Vernon was, was such a factor in his career also. So there's that sort of defiance in Mike also. And uh, I had the pleasure uh, of playing against Mike in junior and uh, had the pleasure of playing with Mike in the NHL my very last year in San Jose. And so he's a dear friend of mine also. I, you know, I, getting back to Chris, uh, it's funny how uh, you sort of cross paths every once in a while. My wife and I go out to a place called Vernon in uh, British Columbia mm-hmm. in uh, the month of July. It's, it's my escape from the hard season and the, the busy schedule I have during the regular season. And Chris Osgood is one of the many NHL guys that spends time out in the Okanagan also. And so we run into each other at the same golf course, uh, Predator Ridge out in uh, Vernon. And we get to chat every year, and he still has that same sort of attitude to me, which I love. He's he's uh, he's a hockey expert. He loves the game. He comes across authoritative, um, and he uh, carries himself in a way in which I really respect. So it's really great when I get a chance to uh, travel around and see a bunch of these guys, and uh, we get to we get to talk hockey, but we kind of see it a little bit differently too, which is also something that I love chatting with guys because you sort of learn something differently if, if you talk to different guys. Yeah, I think if he could do it, I think Ozzy, because he does, uh, you know, he's a uh, analyst for uh, Fox Sports Detroit here on Red Wing Games. If he could commute from BC to uh, to Michigan, he would do it in a heartbeat. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've ta- he's you know he he's something else. I mean, you know, Red Wing fans here know. I mean, we, we Ozzy and I go back a long, long way, and uh, uh, I I truly admire him. Vernie too. Mike Vernon when he came here, he had kind of a prickly attitude, but once you really got to know him and you know you figured all this you know the media and you know there there's it's going to be this uh uh you know constant war but you know he was really a good guy and a gracious guy and when he came back when we were closing the joe i mean vernie was one of the guys that was front and center and just was talking about how much he really loved Detroit. And, you know, Kelly, growing up here, you know, we, we've always heard horror stories about this area, obviously, because, you know, Detroit, big urban area, it has its problems. I'm not going to say it's perfect, but it certainly wasn't as bad. And I think that that was one of the things that, you know, I think a lot of guys, when they, when they start playing for the Red Wings, are a little bit apprehensive about, God, I'm in Detroit, what am I getting into? And then they kind of realize that not only is this an original six team, it has a long history, a hardcore hockey fan base, but Southeast Michigan's a pretty good place to live so it uh, uh, so it's always nice to see uh, from my standpoint that transition where people have one view of Detroit and then when their playing career is over a lot of them stay here or when they go back they always come back because they enjoyed it so much so that I guess that's me editorializing here about Detroit I, I don't know Kelly I'm so psyched to talk to you uh, just tell me to shut up and, uh, and, and we'll continue with the interview here <laughs> uh, but uh, <laughs> I, I can't hear your enthusiasm for the uh, Detroit area and Michigan in general. Uh, I've been there a number of times. I love it. it it's always great when you talk to guys that, uh, like a lot of my former teammates that had a chance to play in Detroit, and they love the area. It, it's like kind of like Winnipeg. When you go there on a business trip, you don't know much about the area and the city and so on. And uh, when I talk to my friends that had a chance to play in Winnipeg, they all say the same thing, how much they love it. It's a great hockey community, just like Detroit. And uh, it was, you know, for me, going back to Detroit was all, always cool because there was always so many uh, alumni that would always be around. And so I'm not a hockey historian, but I, I know a lot of the history of the NHL. And uh, so for me, when I go into the Joe and I uh, either bump into, have a chance to meet, or just even 
see some of the alumni that were around was really inspirational for me. Guys like when Gordy Howe was still alive, uh, Ted Lindsay, and, and many of the others. It was a real cool experience for me to see the history of the game, and Detroit was a big, big part of it. Well, yeah, I, I, well, obviously, I couldn't agree with you more. And, you know, yeah, Gordy, uh, I uh, got to know him very well, and you know I remember him as a player. I'm old enough to remember him playing, and uh, uh, certainly Ted Lindsay is uh, one of my all-time favorite people. What this uh, uh, gentleman does, I mean, all you have to do is the Ted Lindsay Award. I mean, it, it, I mean that's who Ted is, and he's raised so much money for autism here in the state of Michigan, millions of dollars, built a hospital. I mean, you know, for a guy called Terrible Ted, he's certainly uh, a great human being. Yeah, absolutely, and that's the. That's a beautiful part of the game that I really enjoy, that you get to meet these guys on a personal level, and uh, it, it's just cool to see how they carry themselves. And so I mentioned Gordy Howe and Ted Lindsay. One of my all-time favorites uh, in the game was seeing Jean Beliveau. And oh, every man. single time we'd go to the Montreal Forum, he just looked so beautiful and so regal in the stands. He, you know, he had those beautiful suits. He, his hair was perfect. He, and he just carried himself with such grace. And that was sort of my thing when I would see some of these guys. I'd like, oh, my gosh, look how great these guys are. Look how unbelievable, you know, they are, they're such nice gentlemen. And so, to me, that's the part of the history that I really love when I get a chance still to run into some of these guys. And, and I, I look at them, in, you know, with these sort of, Eyes and I'm, I'm kind of like, oh my gosh, I wish I could be anything like these guys. So it's it's really cool for me to travel around and see some of the guys that played before me. Right. I, well, certainly. I mean, I, I, I can remember uh, John Bolivo because growing up in Detroit, Channel 9 here in Windsor, I watched Canadian television my whole life. I always joke around. I thought that Ontario was the 51st state of the United States till I was like 14. I was in Canada so okay. much. But uh, yeah. John, John Bolivo would do those Scotiabank commercials, and I just loved them. I, I, I don't know why. It's, you know, the weird things, you know, kind of stand out as you're growing up. But, uh, yeah. you know. Jean Bolivo was great. I mean, just absolutely a true gentleman. When he passed, I mean, the, the homage that was paid to him, not only by the Canadians, but the hockey world, was very much deserved. Absolutely. There's no question about that. Well, well Kelly, we can, I can go on. I can just throw out all-time players for you, and we can reminisce. But, uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I do too, but everyone's listening. Okay, okay, you old guys, let's, let, let's talk about something uh, a little bit relevant. But let's, how about goaltenders today? Who, who do you really admire? Who do you think? Uh, I know Carey Price stumbled a little bit, but, you know, it seems that he's getting back on his game. The Canadians, a lot of people trying to figure out what's going on with them. Uh, but, uh, uh, but, but, but overall, are, are there some certain guys that when you look at them and say, man, that's an NHL goaltender. Oh boy. The list is endless. Art. I, really? uh, I admire, I admire all of them really because it's, it's the game has evolved and changed so much and that these guys have had to uh, adapt and, and understand. But I guess there's a handful that really stand out to me. And I mentioned Corey Crawford simply because of his nature, the way he, he uh, battles. Uh, Jonathan Quick also, uh, to me, is one of my favorites uh, for the same reason. He's competitive every single game. Uh, uh, I love Braden Holtby. Oh, yeah. uh, I'm going to miss a whole bunch here because of, uh, there, there's, like I said, Pecorino's guy, Frederick Anderson in Toronto, Bobrovsky, um, Jake Allen. Uh, the list, to me, oh, I, you know what? I I really have to mention Roberto Luongo. His right. career will be coming to the end at some point. But he was, or he's a winning machine. I mean, the numbers that he's put up as well, and I'll never forget, our, uh, earlier in this broadcast, you mentioned uh, uh, being on After Hours. So Scott Russell, or Scott Oak and I were out in Vancouver, and uh, our guest that night was going to be uh, on After Hours, Roberto Luongo. Well, the Canucks that night ended up getting smoked at home, and it was bad. It was something like 6-1 or 7-1. And Luongo didn't have his best night. And I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, what are we going to do for half an hour? Oh, by the way, he's going to put on a, a goalie clinic. We're going to have a, a, about two or three young kids come out. And they were going to – Roberto was going to be gracious enough to come on and put on a goalie clinic for them. And, and it was going to be really cool. And I'm thinking, oh, no, 
this this might be right. uh, he might be too upset and he might not come on. He couldn't have been nicer to the kids, and it was one of my favorite after hours. Here was a guy that just ten minutes ago had one of his lousiest uh, nights in the National Hockey League, and he put that aside. He came out. He was. Uh, in a good mood for the kids, he described to them uh, in a real simple way what you're trying to do, what you're trying to accomplish, and it's one of my favorite. I've never forgotten that, and I always thought of here's again, here's the best of our athlete in a difficult situation, and he's he's performing beautifully, and his grace under fire was. Uh, phenomenal that night. Well, you know, I, I, I watched that one. I mean, I, I tried not to miss it, to be honest. Oh, uh, so yeah. I, I remember that one, and, and you're right. I mean, his Twitter account is hilarious. Uh, you know, he just seems to be a good guy. Let me ask you something. I was talking this over with some of the uh, uh, the younger people I work with uh, uh, here at the Red Wings, and they couldn't believe all the players that the Islanders traded at one time, if they would have kept them, uh, they would have several more Stanley Cups. I mean, it was a kind of a, a, a weird environment back then. Um, Luongo was one, Zdeno Chara, Todd Bertuzzi. I mean, I could go on. Uh, uh, is that just uh, when a team is kind of broken apart, uh, or it seems that they can't settle on a, a specific lineup. Is, is that just part of the game? Or when you look back and think, God, what the Islanders could have been if they would have just held on to their own players. It, it, it's truly astounding. Well, I would agree that that does apply to the Islanders. But I always look at it a little bit differently as well. That When you're losing, you've got to try uh, to get better. And if that means you make some mistakes on players. Now, these happen to be high-profile players that you talked about that ended up having remarkable careers. But you do have to try and 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 shuffle things around. Losing, you know, you can't. Even though you have good players, you, the status quo doesn't work. You look at right. the, the Edmonton Oilers recently. They, you look at all the number one or high draft choices that they had, and losing just continue there. They have to do something. And so you look at the trade they made recently with uh, Jordan Everly in the summer and getting Strom back, um, you'd look on the surface and say, well, Everly's having a good year in, in New York now and Strom's not playing all that well in Edmonton, but you've got to do it. Right. And so who knows who's going to win that trade? I know I'm giving you a roundabout answer to the Islanders, but also Mike Milbury is a great friend of mine, so I'm certainly not going to slag him with some of the decisions he made, and he told me uh, why some of the decisions were made. But uh, I think that when I look at it, every single manager has made mistakes. That's the nature of the industry. That's the nature of that job. And so you have to you have to make those decisions, live with them, and then move on and, and try and get better uh, in the future again. Well, you know, I mean, I, I don't even, I, I think you, that was a good answer because you know, being a player and me from covering for so long, that there's certain things that are going on within an organization that just aren't public. Yeah. And, and and sometimes yeah. you, you know, you're right. I mean, there's, there's enormous amounts of pressure on everybody, uh, from player to management to do something, especially when a team is is losing. You know, I, wa- I wanted to ask you something. The, the Red Wings play uh, uh, the Islanders tonight, and uh, John Tavares, who is, uh, I think, a great player, is talking to Franz Nielsen yesterday about it. He kind of reminded me of Steve Iserman from this standpoint. Until the Red Wings started winning cups, and obviously Iserman had, you know, Mario and Wayne, uh, to, who were, you know, two immortals. Not that Stevie yeah. isn't, but you know, probably, you know, Stevie would admit that, you know, just a he's a little bit behind them. Um, but Travaris, if I asked Nielsen if he, if John is a Ranger, because I think he's almost the most underappreciated superstar in hockey. You just don't hear about him. Is that because he's dwarfed by the New York media because they're so Ranger heavy and the Islanders seem to be an afterthought even though they're now in Brooklyn? Well, he's a phenomenal player. He's uh, uh, in the top five. If that, uh, you know, you look at Crosby and McDavid and, and maybe Tavares is the next one. I mean, he's a ridiculously talented hockey player. And all I know is I would love to be him. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I know. <laughs> you think of what he's going to be offered by somebody, uh, and I'm sure the Islanders are doing their best to sign him because they recognize 
the importance that he has to uh, their organization. But man alive, if I'm some organization out there, uh, I am going to offer a boatload of money to him to try and convince him not to re-sign with the Islanders. But uh, I, I do think that uh, Steve Eisenman um, was ridiculously good. Um, I think everybody that's ever played against him would say the same thing. Uh, not only talent-wise, and he was extremely skilled, but he had a competitiveness about him that was at the very, very top. So he was he was one of my favorites to watch also, just so uniquely talented and, and uh, like I said, uh, competitive that you just couldn't take your eyes off him when you played against him. Uh, Kelly, I wanted to ask you, you know, you talked about Stevie, and, and, and I think I wrote you in, in one of our email correspondence, and yes, ladies and gentlemen, there were a lot of them to, uh, to, to get our schedules to, 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 to get here, uh, but I, I, I was there on a, it was a Sunday night ESPN game, I think Sergei Fedorov scored, I think four goals that night, uh, the game was tied, there was no shootout back then, and Sergey had a penalty shot in overtime, and you made the save, uh, which I think, I don't know if it was the most difficult save you've ever had to make in your career, but with the Joe rocking like it was, because everyone just assumed, no offense to you, Kelly, that you know Sergey was going to put yeah. it in the net, and bam, you make, yeah. that, you make that save, and, you know, if... I, I don't know, not a hush fell over the Joe, but I think people were stunned. Uh, can you talk about Fedorov maybe as a player, and if you remember that night, you know, that specific game, because he had a habit of when he started to score goals in a game, he scored them in bunches. Yeah, well, I do remember the game. Uh, I remember it, uh, in fact, because I was so mad at myself. He scored a goal on me, Art, uh, in the second period. He went short side. He came down on my right side. Um and he, he put it stick side along the ice, and for whatever reason, something about his release on that shot fooled me, and uh, like I, I basically barely even moved. I, I don't know what it was about what he did, what was so deceptive about his release that I just couldn't pick it up. And uh, I was so mad at myself, but I was able to recover and regroup and focus again that uh, I... I shared the same feelings that everybody else had on that penalty shot in overtime. I was like, okay, I can feel kind of what the the fans are feeling, that, of course, he's scored four, so it's a, a no-brainer that he's going to get the fifth on me. Uh, I also had a defiant nature about me. Uh, this was a really important game for us. We had played in uh, Toronto the night before. We were in a playoff push. Uh, that game was uh, really important. We needed the points. And what I recall mostly about what, or about that save is that that was kind of like, for me, when the, the position was in transition. So if you look at that save, and I watched it on YouTube, you see my style was really changing at that point. That was more like, that save was more like how a goaltender in today's game would play. So I, I had kind of like a, a butterfly style developing. Uh, it was a, a, a unique save for me at that time. Um, but most importantly, what I remember about that save is the importance of it. And if you look at the video, you'll notice that Wayne Gretzky was the first off the bench. He raced down to my end and uh, embraced me because he also recognized, recognized the importance of the save in terms of where we were in the standing. So that game uh, really stands out to me of all the games uh, and because of all the unique circumstances. Fedorov having a great game. He was, by the way, in that stretch that you're talking about, uh, the best player, best two-way player. He was so fun to watch. He was so great offensively, defensively. He was really responsible. He kind of reminded me at that point in his career of Yari Curry. Yari uh, was known as an incredible offensive player, but until I played with him in Los Angeles, I didn't truly understand how great he was defensively as well. He was phenomenal. Yeah, after that game, I uh, met up with, and I'm not trying to be a big name dropper here, but through uh, yeah. um, Eddie Mio's a good friend, and uh, yeah. uh, at, at, a, uh, at a watering hole in Detroit, which uh, closed down at 2 a.m., but we were still in there. It was Wayne, Rick Tockett, Elto Reed from the uh, Bob Seeger yeah. band, the sax player. Uh, we, and we were talking, and we watched the replay of that game on ESPN, and, you know, and Wayne just had wonderful things to say about, 
first of all, playing in Los Angeles, which he loved, and also uh, about the Red Wings in Fedorov. But uh, I'm real curious because I've met him a few times, and for a guy that could be... Wayne Gretzky could be anything he wanted to be or, or treat people any way he probably wanted to and get away with it again because he's Wayne Gretzky. Uh, the thing, and I say this a lot about hockey players, but he is just a normal, humble guy who uh, 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 is appreciative of everything that has come his way. And I think, you know, Red Wing fans, I mean, when Gordy passed, I mean, Wayne was here you know, the whole week. I mean, he didn't leave. And, uh, I mean, it's just a testament. You played with him. You know him. What can you tell us about Wayne Gretzky? Okay, he's unique, um, so he's not like us. <laughs> <laughs> got a different skill set uh, uh, than all of us. The one thing that uh, um, I was quick to learn when I started playing with him in Los Angeles, he's like my good buddy at CBC, Ron McLean. Oh, yeah. Uh, they both have, yeah. They both have the most incredible memory ever. So they can go, um, they can be somewhere and meet. Let's just say, I'll, I'll bring up anybody. Franz Nielsen's parents. So Ron McLean will meet them. And then three years from now, he'll run into them somewhere and he'll remember their name. Wow. That's how unique that uh, Ron McLean and, and Wayne Gretzky, uh, that's how their brain works. It's unlike most people. So... It was really cool when Wayne and I were together every once in a while uh, in Los Angeles. We'd go into some city, it doesn't matter, just pick a city. And I would sort of, I'd get off the bus and I'd sort of lag behind because I wanted to kind of follow Wayne into the arena. And there he is again. And he'd remember the Zamboni driver's name and he'd ask how his wife is doing. And then he'd run into somebody else and he'd remember the arena workers. And it was just so cool for me to see that. And so whenever I'm around Wayne, he, 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 I, I'm just blown away by his uh, memory. And, and the same applies to Ron McLean. Those are two, two unique people. Wow, I mean, uh, well, obviously, again, you know, not to sound redundant here, but growing up here watching Hockey Night in Canada my whole life, and, you know, certainly uh, when I was uh, years ago on radio, I got to know John Cherry. He did a weekly segment on uh, 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 on the radio station. And, uh, I, I mean, it's just a unique um, Hockey Night in Canada, it's tough to explain to people who are who can't see it. I guess now with Center Ice, maybe everybody can, but that program yeah. is such an institution. I used to do it uh, many years ago, over 20 now, uh, when I started at Ice Time, the uh, Red Wing Hockey Show. Uh, I had I, CBC let me, gave me, to use Foster Hewitt's, you know, Hello Canada, Newfoundland, and hockey fans in the United States are, are that iconic open, I mean, and, and for you to be a player, for you to be a kid growing up in Canada, and now to be such an essential part of the Hockey Night in, in uh, Canada broadcast, I, I would imagine that, uh, as corny as it sounds, you're kind of living the dream, it sounds like. Oh, definitely, and, and I think of some of the people that, uh, when I joined Hockey Night in Canada, First of all, Art, I was never more nervous in my life when <laughs> I had my uh, earpiece in and I'm hearing the, the music that I grew up listening to on Saturday night and now thinking that I'm going to be on that program was more nerve-wracking than any other game that I ever played in the National Hockey League. And then when I was able to work alongside people like Dick Irvin Jr. and uh, Bob Cole and Harry Neal and some of these others that... Uh, giants in the industry, and to think that to a certain degree I'm sharing the same stage, it was a it was a, something that not only did I really cherish and appreciate, but to be on that show, it's, it's kind of like you have to live up to that standard as well. So that sort of was a driving point for me in terms of my my uh, homework for the show for every Saturday night. That you just can't take this this. Uh, being on Hockey Night lightly. It's a show that requires incredible concentration and tons of work, tons of research because of the people that were on the show before me and the people that are currently on the show, that we have that sort of standard. So I'm really proud to say that uh, uh, Canadians uh, still love the show, and I'm really happy when I travel to the States and I have people come up to me and say, hey, listen, I... I've watched you on Hockey Night in Canada for a number of years, really appreciate the show, love the history and the, the kind of unique way in which we broadcast the game. Well, I, I, 
I always like, I like Scott, I love the interview, the after hours, because, you, you know, you, you, you throw, like, weird tweets at these fellas, you throw pictures of them from, as they're growing up, and, you know, they seem to really enjoy it. I know you were part of, uh, of that for a number of years, you and Scott doing the interviews. You moved to the yeah. studio, um, I don't know, a couple seasons ago at least, if, if I remember correctly, and what I like about you, and what I've always liked about you, and you can see it when they do the uh, the wide shot of uh, of the four of you sitting there, uh, not with David Amber, and you're you're talking with Nick and Elliot and you, is that you listen. Yeah. You actually listen. You 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 know. You can see your head moving as they're each talking. You can tell that you're thinking, as opposed. And this is mostly on the American pre and post game shows. These guys have something they want to say, and they're going to say it regardless. Regardless, but you integrate yourself into the conversation, which I think is pretty difficult to do because in today's society, everybody just wants to get their point across. But I, I think you are fantastic on there because there's sometimes it looks like you even have a smirk when Nick is going off on something uh, that you kind of hone it all in. I mean, it's it, it's really uh, a, a great panel and it's really the way you interact with everybody is, you know, is, is, is absolutely uh, entertaining and informative. It's funny you mention that, Art, because uh, I've always said uh, now that I'm older and when I look back uh, on my life, and in particular how I was as a kid, um, I've always said that um, my greatest quality was I'm a good listener, and I, I think I'm still that way. And when I go out for dinner with my friends and so on, I, of course, will have an opinion, um, but more importantly, I like to listen to hear what people have to say. And then, then you sort of form your own sort of thoughts after that. And I, I've always found it great that I have an opinion, I'll most likely share it if I think it's appropriate, but more than likely, I want to learn from other people, and by listening, that's the best tool that you have. And so that's kind of been, I guess, my trademark, and uh, I hope that ne never disappears. Well, I'll tell you, listening is a is a, a trait and quality of a great broadcaster. It certainly is, and uh, uh, I, I want to finish off with with some stories from the book here because I know we're, we're we're running out of time. You've been really gracious with your time, uh, Kelly. But uh, I have to ask you about the situation the Red Wings find themselves in right now. Uh, you know, people here obviously are not used to this. Although I'm old enough where I remember the dead thing, so I've kind of seen this, and it isn't quite as bad. But with a hard cap and and drafting and Ken Holland, who's in the last year of his contract, uh, you know, the Red Wings are, are are hanging on by a thread here because obviously with the way the Metropolitan Division is, if you don't if you're not in the top three in the uh, in the Atlantic Division, and let's be honest, it looks like Toronto and certainly Tampa are a lock. That there's a number of teams fighting for the third and final playoff spot in that division because the two wild cards are going to go to the Metropolitan Division. Uh, your uh, your thoughts on the Red Wings? Well, first of all, I think that when you look at the league in its entirety, uh, there might only be, uh, you could argue, four or five really good teams, and then there's everybody else. So if you're one of those that's everybody else, all you have to do, not all you do, because that sounds dismissive or, or that it's easy, what you have to try and do is stay in the race, and then uh, at some point hope that you're going to sort of gel, find some chemistry, put it together, go on a run, and put yourself in a really good position. So uh, you look at the wings, they're six points behind Boston, which seems like a lot, but in today's game, you, you look at a lot of the teams and you might lose a bunch, and then all of a sudden you can go on a big run. And so they could find themselves uh, right up against uh, Boston here in no time. So uh, there's, there are a, a few good teams after that. I think it, it's kind of like a mess, and you have no idea how it's going to finish up. So you, as you mentioned earlier in the show, I'm a Calgary Flames uh, color analyst, and if you would have looked at their season last year, they would have been sort of in the same mix uh, until even late January. And then all of a sudden they took off. They had a great February. They had a great March, and they found themselves in a playoff position. So that's kind of where you have to be. You've got to stay in the mix. And you've got to tweak a bunch of things and hope that uh, everybody sort of comes together at the right, right time. And, of course, you need great goaltending. And, uh, and I do think the Red Wings goaltending is 
really strong. I've been a big fan of Jimmy Howard for a long, long time, and Peter Morazic has certainly shown that that he has the ability to steal games and for long stretches. So I like them. I'm uh, I have to admit. I'm a friend of Ken Holland. I've known him uh, for a long, long time. We're both former Medicine Hat Tigers, so I might be a little bit uh, biased in that area as well. Well, when uh, uh, it's it's uh, the Medicine Hat Tigers, that's Ozzy's team too. So, uh, yeah, yeah, that that's yeah. still his favorite hockey jersey. He tells me. <laughs> well, we all have the soft spot for where we play junior hockey. Right, that that, that that's certainly true. Uh, I uh, let's go to the book um, again. Uh, Kelly Rudy is our guest here on the Red and White Authority. It's uh, the the book is called Calling the Shots, Ups, Downs, and Rebounds: My Life in the Great Game of Hockey. And uh, I, I read a a, a a a review of the book where it says when you were writing it. You called Wayne Gretzky and said, when you're writing your book, were you this emotional that you were actually crying at points? I mean, can you explain, was it just cathartic for you? Uh, uh, it, because it sounds that, uh, you know, obviously you poured your heart and soul into this. Yeah, it's funny. I, I think that might have been on the second day of the writing with Kirstie McClellan Day. She's wrote some of the other books uh, for Ron McLean as well and Wayne's uh, last book and so on. And... It was very emotional in a lot of different circumstances, and a lot of uh, stories in the book. I reveal a lot about myself, um, and to do that, I think that you have to be honest with yourself. You have to be honest about uh, where you think uh, you were wrong at times, and so on. I, uh, the one that day about when I sent Wayne that text was a little bit unique because I was going through my family history, and I'm a very emotional person, anyways. Like I'm. I'm a crier. I go to a wedding art and I cry. I'm so happy for the people. So that just sort of puts in context who I am and what, uh, how I made up. But uh, I think it might have been talking about my dad and stuff, and I lost him recently, and so that was part of it. Um, but Wayne assured me that it gets better uh, at, uh, as you go on, and, and to a certain degree it did. I was able to share uh, a lot with Kirsty about my life and certain circumstances. I was still emotional in, in uh, a lot of other parts. And so I, I think you'll see that in my book. You'll understand how I share a lot of things. And, uh, you know, the guy that uh, I'm most critical of in the book, um, and there is a little bit of conflict in the book, is me. I'm the guy that takes it the hardest on the chin. So I think that that tells you about how I wanted to approach this book. Well, there was a, another, uh, as I said, because I, uh, I asked for it for Christmas, so I haven't read it, but I've read a number of reviews. You talk about trade deadline day, because you were traded, about how when you walk into the television studio one day, everyone's almost gleeful because it's a, usually a big day and guys move and you know names move and maybe maybe this year uh, uh, John Tavares will move if, if if the Islanders can't work out a deal. I, I doubt it, but I mean I'm just saying, especially where they are in the playoff push. But you know you 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 know you almost had to bring them down to earth, or at least you were thinking it to yourself, like fellas, this is. This is pretty emotional, and there's a great story about your wife being eight months pregnant, and you're traded to the yeah. to the Kings. And you know Bruce McNall, who you know we, we can talk all about as an owner and what happened to him eventually, but uh, the Kings uh, came through for you. Well, to us as the players in, in Los Angeles, Bruce was amazing. He was a great owner. He he treated us with lots of respect. He did things uh, for us that uh, other organizations weren't willing to do. As an example, uh, the story that you're sharing is that, uh, yeah, I wasn't actually traded on trade deadline. It was maybe a couple weeks before mm -hmm. uh, trade deadline, um, but it was not a happy experience for me. I was extremely hurt. I was uh, mad at the Islanders for trading me. Uh, I felt betrayed. Uh, I had, uh, as you mentioned, my wife was due with our second daughter about a month uh, from that, uh, and Bruce was nice enough at, uh, during the early part of the playoffs to fly out a plane for her uh, and then bring her to L.A. because she wasn't able to go commercial because uh, Megan, our, our daughter that we had that year, was just too young and mm -hmm. not uh, able to fly. She wasn't given uh, permission from the doctor, just too young, uh, and because of all the illnesses and so on that so you could potentially get on a plane. So Bruce was that kind to do that. Um, but uh, I don't know when the, that whole thing 
changed, and it became kind of like a celebration. It's trade deadline. It's kind of like we're inviting you to this party, and it's so <laughs> exciting, and the players are excited. Well, I'm here to tell you they're not. This is not a day they look forward to. It's not like, hey, let's gather around. This is really fun. This is cool. My teammate might get traded. I might get traded. It's, it's, it's a, a time of upheaval, and it's a time of uncertainty that the players dread. And only in, only a few players like getting traded, and those would be the guys that feel, though, they're not getting the opportunity in the organization they're in, that if they go elsewhere, they might have more success. But that's a handful of guys. Most guys love where they play, and they don't like trade deadline. They don't like to hear their name in rumors. They don't like that. It's, um, it's, it's difficult on families. You have to find a new place to live. You have to find new places for your kids to go to school. It's all this stuff that, that people don't talk about on these trade deadline shows. And, and so when I did that last year, it was like, I'm not going to do this every year. I'm not going to go out there and say, Let, let's uh, rein it back here a little bit. But <laughs> that was my point about that show because it, it's, we, were, we, were, we were not accurately portraying the trade deadline uh, shows from a player's standpoint. Well, I, I, I know from a, a fact that certain guys, in, like Riley Sheehan struggled last year, as we all know. He scored two goals all of last season. They happened to be on the last day of the year, the last uh, game at, at Joe Louis Arena. He was traded from, uh, from the Wings to the Penguins, where he's doing well, and we all wish him well. But I remember him yeah. from his days at Notre Dame. And, and I know that he was so ingrained in the Detroit community, did things with the Humane Society, uh, adopting dogs, fostering dogs, you name it. I mean, Riley was there for a lot of people. And it was not only was it difficult for Riley to leave Detroit, it was also difficult for his teammates who, because we forget, you guys are together constantly. I mean, more than you are probably with your own families at times. And so uh, uh, the devast I don't know, devastation might be too weird, but the shock of being traded from a room, from, from the room where you've shared so much with these guys, I mean, it affects everybody. Oh, definitely. There's no question. Uh, I don't know if devastation is the wrong word. I think to a certain degree it is. Uh, that when you lose a friend, uh, he's going elsewhere. And I had many of those situations where I had a dear, dear friend, and then unfortunately one day he's told he's traded, and and uh, so you don't have that relationship in your life anymore. And uh, you learn to get over it, you learn to accept it, but it's not easy. And, you know, maybe it's a little bit different world now because of, uh, the way in which we interact with each other, you know, we text each other now and say, hey, how's it going, bud, right. and you're doing okay, and so we have that sort of interaction, which wasn't available when I was a player, and so it wasn't maybe quite as easy to stay in contact with guys and and uh, uh, sort of carry on those relationships, but nonetheless, you're still 2,000 miles away and it's not the same as being in the same dressing room together. No, you know, I'll tell you, I've told this story before, and, uh, you know, Mickey Redman, obviously, who's an icon here in Detroit as a broadcaster, worked at Hockey Night in Canada uh, as well, but when the Red Wings traded Frank Mahovlich to Montreal for Mickey Redman, um, I was young, but I was devastated. I mean, I was. I love the Big M. I love that line of Del Vecchio, Mahavlich, and how you know the I don't know third or fourth incarnation of the production line. I was so into the Big M, and when he left. I, I can remember this is the day before even videotape. You know, they had to shoot everything on film. They caught up with Gordy Howe, and, and they asked Gordy, and you could tell, you know, he is real tight with 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 Mahavlich, obviously. And he said, when a player yeah. is traded, I always say. Goodbye to an old friend and hello to a new friend. And somehow, and I'm, I'm like 10 years old or something, that kind of calmed me down. You know, I tell Mickey that story, and he loves it, but it's the honest-to-God's truth. I mean, I, I guess as a player, you know, and that's when I had to realize, you know, these guys are people. You know, they're just people, and they have emotions and feelings, too. You know, that's a good point. Um, and that is kind of how you have to look at it, that uh, the one that really got me early on, because it was a blockbuster trade, so I'm with the Islanders, and, and we traded John Tonelli. He was a fabulous uh. player. And we traded him to Calgary for Steve Conroy and Richie Cron. And so the good part about that story is I really missed John, and he was a good friend of mine. 
enough to have met two new friends and make two new friends. I still see Steve and Richie uh, every once in a while, and uh, they're two of my favorite uh, teammates that I ever played with. So when you look at it, when you turn it around, you look at it from that vantage point, it's a, it's a real positive, but nonetheless, it's still... It's still upheaval in your life. Right. Now, it certainly is. Uh, uh, Kelly, I want to ask you uh, a question about the, maybe the team that is the talk of hockey is the Vegas Golden Knights. Uh, I, I try to watch them on center ice every time I can. You know, Gerard Gallant, obviously Spudsy, we all love him here in Detroit. Um, are you stunned? Are you shocked? Or is it the way they, you know, the whole expansion draft was set up that they should be maybe not as good as they are, but that they were going to be a competitive team? Uh, I think all of us thought that they were going to be more competitive than any other previous expansion team, simply because you look at the players they had a chance to, to pick from. That, that's the best-looking uh, expansion draft in the history of uh, pro sports, in all likelihood, at least in our game. Mm-hmm. And you look at their management team and who they chose. They chose players that are fast, that are skilled. They're, they don't have any ex, like really top-end guys, but they have a lot of really, really good players. Uh, and you look at some of those the guys, like James Neal, he's a really solid hockey player. Riley Smith had good years. David Perron, uh, he is a skilled guy that plays hard, fast, uh, Nate Schmidt, we, I think a lot of us, when you looked at Washington, you're like, why isn't this guy in the, in the lineup more often? Like, he's a real solid player. Uh, Shea Theodore, I loved him when he was in Anaheim. So you look at their list, they stuck with their idea and how to play. Um, I, I kind of look at Vegas kind of like I did when Florida was an expansion team. And I remember reading the comments from uh, Bobby Clark, back then uh, he was involved in their expansion process and back then although it's a different game they had a belief that they were going to pick a certain style of player and for Florida back then it was uh, it was something like I recall Bobby Clark saying we're going to pick a bunch of guys that are extremely hard to play against and so that's why they had success early and so you look at Vegas and they've done similar things although they've chosen players that can play fast, which is today's game. So I think they've done an amazing job. I'm not sure yet if they can sustain this, um, but but to a certain degree, does it really matter? I think they've taken, the, as you said, the hockey world by storm. They're having tons of success. They've got a great coach, and uh, they're enjoying it right now. So, you know, let them, let them have some fun with this. Uh, I- I, I, two more questions, Kelly, and then, and then you can run. I mean, because I, I could go on. I could go on to the point of where my wife will walk in from work and she'll divorce me uh, because I'm still talking to you. But uh, uh, I have to ask you about the Easter epic. You know, you have 73 saves. It's still like the most saves in a playoff game. 1987. Uh, when you play in something like that, regardless, I mean, certainly you want to win, but, I mean, is is that – just such a rush for you to be involved in something that you know is is immortal almost. It's going to live forever. Yeah, well, you don't know it at the time. You know that uh, during the course of the game, uh, we did recognize that it was unique because uh, in the building, um, during a stoppage of play, as the sort of overtimes went on and on and on, uh, they would flash things on the scoreboard, something like this is now the... <laughs> 11th longest game in NHL history, and then, you know, the 8th longest, and then, uh, if, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Art, I think it might have ended up at, uh, in when it ended the 5th longest in NHL history, or something like that. Yes. Anyways, I, rem- I remember in the 3rd overtime, or could it have even been the 4th overtime, they're flashing this on the scoreboard in a, work, or a play stoppage, and Faceoff was in my own zone, and Andy Van Helleman, he was the referee that night. We both looked up at it. We're kind of standing beside each other, and we both said something like, oh, my God, this is amazing, or this is really cool or something. (laughs) A smile came across my face, and the reason I remember that is because my mom and dad were watching at home. Bob Cole and Harry Neal were calling the game uh, on Hockey Night in Canada. They were watching it, and it might have been Harry that said something like, uh, to Bob, something like, wouldn't you want that to be your goalie? Look, it's 
third or fourth overtime, and look how relaxed he is talking to Andy Van Helleman. But the truth of the matter is, I think that if you ask Bob Mason, he most likely would have been in the same mindset right. that at some point there's not really very much pressure anymore. Do you think you're going to get uh, criticized a lot if you let in a goal in the fourth overtime? I mean, not likely, right? You've most In most people's eyes, you've done your job. Right. So, um, especially in a 2-2 game. So, to me, uh, I just didn't know, looking back, the impact that game would have had on my career. It was a game in which I think uh, my recognition or, or um, my standing amongst other goaltenders kind of increased in that game. Uh, because of that, I was invited to try out for the Team Canada 87 Canada Cup team. Uh, from that experience, I met Wayne Gretzky. From that experience, he was the... I think the uh, reason I was traded from New York to L.A. So that in, that one game, although I didn't know it at the time, I think had such an impact on the course of my career and my life that uh, for that reason it will always be, I guess, the most important game I ever played to a certain degree. Well, you know, it, it, it was memorable. I remember watching it, and it ended right around, I don't know, like 2, 2.30 in the morning. And, uh, you know, I mean, that's what I love about playoff hockey. Four minutes to two, exactly. Four minutes to two. All right, well, I, 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 it, yeah. playoff hockey is the best. I mean, you know, I mean, if Charles Barkley says it's the best, it, it has to be. So, uh, uh, they, uh, yeah. Isn't that great? How he, he's a big fan of our sport, <laughs> right? It really is. I mean, there's a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of people that are that you know, and certainly, it certainly seems during playoff time. People sort of come out of the woodwork, especially in the United States, celebrities who are just like, wow, this is intense. I mean, this is great. And you playing in Los Angeles, um, the celebrity community, Hollywood, seems to have really embraced uh, uh, hockey, uh, which is which, which is good for the sport. I mean, for, for the exposure of the sport. Uh, all right, Kelly, I, I could go on because I... I, I want to talk to you about Mike Bossy, but I won't. I'll hold that for another time because we're going to have to have you back. Right. But but this okay. is this is the final question. Calling the shots, ups, downs, and rebounds. My life in the game of hockey. It's been out for a few months now. You're done writing it. What did you learn about yourself during this writing process of writing this book? Yes, um, that if you're going to really do it and you're going to uh, share some stories that you've got to really be honest about yourself. And so I didn't really have much problem with that. It's just that uh, when you, you share some stories and then when you go and do book tours and so on, you, uh, you, you need to be willing to talk about those experiences. And, and the one in particular that stands out to me, Art, was the 92-93 season because I share everything about that season. It was uh, at certain points, the best season uh, of my career early on, it turned out to be uh, the worst part of my NHL career for about two months, and then I uh, ended up getting back on track and going to the finals that year with the Kings. So lots of different peaks and valleys in that uh, season, and I was uh, more than willing to share it. And I think so people that read the book will get a different perspective of the career that I had. Great. Well, Kelly, I know we, we probably talked longer than each one of us thought, but uh, I truly appreciate you being on the Red and White Authority. Uh, I can't thank you enough. Uh, you know, a big admirer of yours. Love your work on uh, uh, on Hockey Night in Canada. Always loved you as a player. I mean, that, that bandana, that drew me right into you, and uh, I followed you since. So uh, thank you very, very, very much. Uh, you know, season's greetings, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, and all that, Kelly, and we'll have to have you on again. Thank you. You got it. Thanks, Art. That was a lot of fun.